Hey, we're in Acts chapter 11 today, and we're going to be talking today about the church that changed the world. This is really kind of, again, where you and I are coming into the story. While I'm telling you about that, y'all excuse me while I make myself at home here. You might remember um, about a year ago, I was preaching a sermon series called Captivity, and I told you that I was um, kind of building that around a manuscript for a book that a member of our church was working on writing. So he graciously sort of let me have some insight into the book process there as he was writing that and putting all that together and formed my sermon series around that. Well, his book was just published, and it's out now. It's called He Who Dwells, Finding Our True Home in Christ, and it's by our very own Bob Cofield, who I think maybe, yeah, that's cool, huh? I think he's uh, in, in Bible study this hour. I got to visit with him out in the hallway a little bit earlier today. But this is on Amazon. So if you want to uh, go on Amazon and order a copy, it's easy to find. You can search it by that title, He Who Dwells, Bob Cofield, and you'll find it. It'll be a great resource to you, okay? So let's talk today, Acts chapter 11, about the church that changed the world. Honestly, this is why you and I are here, because of what we're going to see today, this church that changed the world. Let's start reading in Acts chapter 11, beginning in... Verse 1, I still haven't caught my breath from scooting around the room a minute ago. Uh, Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Just a quick review, this was last week's story where God calls Peter to go up to Caesarea and he shares the gospel with a Gentile, an Italian soldier there, and he and his household are saved. God's doing a great work there. The barrier between Jew and Gentile is being removed now, was removed at the cross, but that proclamation and that good news now is going forth to the preaching of the Gentiles. And so the word of that, what happened with this Gentile guy in Caesarea, gets back to the leaders at the church in Jerusalem who are all Jewish. Verse 2 says, when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said, all right? Remember, God was working through Peter. He was having to teach Peter uh, there is no more division among people. God's bringing to himself people of every tongue and tribe and nation together as one family in Jesus. Now, we're not going to read all of that in Acts chapter 11 today because we already read that story twice. Peter's about to tell the story that you and I unpacked last week. So let's skip down to verse 15. He says, as I began to speak, Peter continued, he's telling his story to the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. He says, the Holy Spirit fell on them, that is the Gentiles, just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We just said that, that Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit, right? He's baptized us now with his Holy Spirit into his church. So Peter says that, verse 17, and since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us. If you don't know what Gentile is, that's a non-Jew, all right? That's probably probably most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room. We're Gentiles. And Peter says, since God gave these Gentiles the same gift, that is the Holy Spirit, that he gave us Jews when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Hey, Peter, you're getting it, right? You kind of figure this thing out. I'm not going to stand in God's way. And when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Excellent. 
But now we're about to find out that this wasn't just in one isolated pocket of Gentiles. Verse 19 says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death. How many remember we preached on that several weeks ago? Stephen was murdered there back in Acts chapter 7 and 8. So after Stephen's death, there's a scattering of Christians, and they traveled, the Bible says, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. And I want to take you to the map today. I told you I would try to do that because these are real people in real places, all right? So as you remember, this all starts in Jerusalem. That's where the apostles are gathered together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and falls on them, and that is the beginning of the church. And then after the persecution breaks out and Stephen is martyred, the gospel begins to move out. Philip takes it up to Samaria, and we'll fly up there to Samaria, and a great revival breaks out there in Samaria, and then God calls Philip to leave Samaria, and he goes down, he meets a guy from Ethiopia on the Gaza Strip, and that guy's on the desert road, he's going back to Ethiopia, he's uh, been to Jerusalem to worship, and so he comes to know Christ through uh, Philip's ministry, so now the gospel is not only spread to Samaria, but now it's also spread into the continent of Africa. From there, the story then turns to Damascus. This guy named Saul, who was the guy back in um, chapter 7 that they were laying their coats down at his feet while they murdered Stephen. Saul is going to Damascus to round up more followers of Jesus, to persecute them. But Jesus himself stops Saul on that road, and Saul is dramatically converted. He's born again. God sends a man by the name of Ananias. You may remember that. He wakes him up, sends him to Saul, lays his hands on Saul. Saul gets his sight back. Saul begins to preach in Damascus. Instead of persecute, he begins to preach the gospel. They have to sneak Saul out of there, and he ends up going back up to Tarsus. We'll show you where Tarsus is if you're curious. This is where Saul is from originally. His hometown across the Mediterranean Sea is up there in this place called Tarsus, all right? Then the story picks back up down on the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea when Peter is at Simon the Tanner's house down in Joppa, all right? And so it's in Joppa that he's up on the roof. You may remember this from a couple of weeks ago, and he has that vision of the sheet, the clean and the unclean animals that comes down. And then God calls him to go about 30 miles up the coast to Caesarea. And this is where he meets Cornelius, and the gospel is shared there. And, and this is why he's been back in Jerusalem now talking to the church there about what exactly happened with Cornelius. Now we're reading that uh, not only did it stop there, but verse 19 said after Stephen's death that the Christians traveled as far as Phoenicia. And we'll show you where Phoenicia is. Now we're learning where, where they went. They went out a little further to Phoenicia. There you see Phoenicia. And Cyprus, which is this island right over in the Mediterranean Sea. That's also where Barnabas, if you remember, and we're going to talk about Barnabas, Barnabas some more. He's an islander there from Cyprus and Antioch. We're going to take a eastward journey from Cyprus right over to Antioch. And that's what we're, look at that, real place, real people, y'all. This stuff really happened. And our focus is going to be on this place called Antioch today, all right? So let's go back to the text. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered, and you just saw that scattering, during the persecution after Stephen's death, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene, I didn't put Cyrene on the map, but that's down on the African continent, 
on the upper portion of Libya, on the Mediterranean coast. Well, these believers began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. Verse 21 says, The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. He's talking about in the city of Antioch, right? So these people that believed in Jesus, who scattered out after Stephen was murdered, they eventually land in Antioch, where they begin to transition from preaching the gospel to Jews only, but now also to Gentiles. That's really breaking out in Antioch. And verse 22 says, When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened. Again, the church at Jerusalem hears Gentiles are coming to know Jesus now in Antioch, and that blows their mind. So they sent Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? We talked about him. He's from Cyprus. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Go up there and investigate it. Check it out. They trust Barnabas, right? So when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. And many people, we're talking about in Antioch, many people were brought to the Lord. I love that it says many people, because the distinction now between Jew and Gentile really is just sort of beginning to fade away. It's just people who need to be saved. That's it. People who need the Lord Jesus. Verse 25, then Barnabas went on to Tarsus, You saw Tarsus on the map, Saul's hometown. They snuck Saul back up to Tarsus. Well, Barnabas leaves Antioch. He goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back down to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching the large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. They're our people. This is our story. This is where we come from. This is the church at Antioch that changed the entire world. So I want to make sure you see that, that this gathering of believers that we have now in Antioch, the Bible is now calling them a church. They're a local church, just like you and I are here today at Grace Life. And this is where we pick up the name, the word Christians. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. It's a pretty interesting place. At this time, it was the third largest city in the world. Behind only Rome, you know where that is, and Alexandria, which is the northern part of Egypt, again, on the Mediterranean Sea. About 600,000 people were living in Antioch at the time that you and I are reading this in in, in Acts chapter 11. To get your brain around how big a city that is, if you grabbed Mobile and Birmingham and took them to Huntsville, that's about how big a city we're talking about that Antioch really is. And it was an important place in the Roman Empire. You're familiar with the uh, great road system of the Roman Empire. And they all just sort of crisscrossed through Antioch. So that's the reason it was such a big city. It was a tremendous place of culture and a tremendous place of commerce. But it was also really sort of the epicenter of evil in the Roman Empire. In fact, one uh, ancient Roman poet from the first century named Juvenal, he said this, he said the Euphrates River spilled its garbage into the Tiber. That was a poetic way of saying all the filth and the madness of the Roman Empire comes to Rome from Antioch, all right? So this is just a, just a pretty dark and a pretty wicked, evil sort of place. The people live there, 
for pleasure. One writer said this, he said it was a perpetual festival of vice revolving around the baths, the brothels, the amphitheater, and the circus. So it was a horribly evil place. One of their most famous goddesses that they worshipped was the goddess Daphne. Uh, she was thought to be the lover of Apollo. And inside this massive city of Antioch, they actually had built a garden that was about 10 miles in circumference. Now, to give you an idea, most of our church family is within a 10-mile circumference of where we're sitting right now. That would take you uh, from here through Bessemer, all the way up through Hueytown, back around Lakeview, back around Helena, and then all the way back up around here. All right, They built a garden that big. And, and the people that lived in that 10-mile radius were all prostitutes, male, female, and all ages, if you catch my drift. This was a horrible place, evil place, a dark place. And this is how people worshipped. They, they would go to that massive garden. They would worship their gods with all kinds of wickedness like that. But look, here's what God's doing. God has decided, I'm going to start a church that's going to change the world. And I'm going to start it right there in that place, in that city. Isn't that, isn't that just typical of how our God is? He takes the least likely people in the least likely place and he does incredible things through that. Isn't that your story? Weren't you the most least likely person that God would save and that God would ever use? But he reached out in grace and mercy and he saved you and he's using you. So we have this unlikely band of misfits and castaways in Antioch and that becomes the first group of Christians. That becomes the church that's going to change the world. And you can trace us being here today to those people in that place. And so it's good for us today to get to know them, right, a little bit better. So let's do that today. Let's talk about the church that changed the world. And the first thing I want you to see, I want you to see their beginning. This is their beginning. Let's go back to verse 19 of chapter 11 of Acts. Luke says, meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. Verse 19 of chapter 11 picks up where chapter 8 left off. Let me take you back to chapter 8 of Acts, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. There's persecution. Stephen's dead. Saul's going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, right? He's a monster. He's dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Verse 4, but the believers who were scattered. Now, today we're finding out just how far they got scattered, right? All the way to Antioch. They were scattered and they preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. So the first thing that I want you to see about this church that changed the world, I want you to see their beginning, and I want you to see that suffering is what started it. That's the beginning of their church. It was suffering. Chapter 8 tells us that Saul is standing there that day, and he's standing there while this angry mob wants to kill Stephen. Stephen's preaching the gospel. And Saul's essentially saying to the crowd, Hey, I know you don't want to get blood on your robes. 
I know you don't want to risk tearing your robes as you go kill this guy, so just leave him with me. I'll hold on to him. I'll take care of him until you finish the deed over there with Stephen. And the Bible says that was the beginning of this great outbreak of persecution against God's people there in Jerusalem. And it was so bad that what happens is the believers scattered all over the place. And chapter 8, verse 4 says, as they were scattering, they were preaching the good news of the gospel wherever they went. So, so think about this. It was the suffering that they were experiencing in chapter 8 that led to the starting of the church in Antioch in chapter 11. All right? Lock into that. It was the suffering of these people in chapter 8 that led to the starting of the church that's changing, changing and has changed the entire world in Acts chapter 11. The murder of Stephen has been used by God to multiply the church throughout the entire world. Anybody got a story in your life where God took a mess, God took a hurt, God took brokenness, God took pain, and he turned it into something good? That's their beginning, birthed out of suffering. Satan's strategy, watch this, Satan's strategy to exterminate the church only served to extend the church. To all the nations of the earth. Think about that. Saul is there and he leads out in the stoning of Stephen, which leads to the scattering of believers then all throughout that region, which leads to the founding of the church at Antioch, spoiler alert, which becomes the church that sends that same Saul out as a global missionary. Who could write that? Did you track along with that? Saul's standing there going, kill the guy. The people scatter. A church gets started that ends up laying hands on Saul and sends him out to be a missionary to the nations of the earth. In Acts 7 and 8, Saul didn't know it, but God was using him to start the church that would send him out as a missionary. Is my mic on? Because that's really fantastic information. Like, nobody's like, like, oh, wow. That, did you hear what I'm saying? God used Saul and the persecution he inflicted, the suffering that he inflicted to actually start the very same church that's going to send him out as a missionary to the nations of the earth. Amen. All right, whatever. I'm kind of excited about it. Saul became the greatest missionary for the very movement he was determined to stop. And that's tr it was true then, it's true now, that when Satan tries, when he endeavors to stop the church, he only serves to expand the church and the work of God in the world. Right? Jesus said that would happen. The gates of hell will try to stop it, and they will not be able to. So the church that changed the world began with suffering. Not only did it begin with suffering, but secondly, it began with just some ordinary people. Just some ordinary people like me and you. Let's go back again to chapter 8 of Acts. Verse 1, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered. 
through the regions of Judea and Samaria. See that? So suffering launched this scattering, and all the believers, they scattered except the famous ones, except the leaders, except the apostles. The Bible says they stayed there in Jerusalem while everybody else scattered. The apostles were the ones with the name recognition. It was the no-names that scattered with the gospel. It was just some ordinary people that scattered and began to take the gospel to all of these places. These people had no clout. They had, they had no name. They had no notoriety. They had no training. They had no experience. But some of them go on to start the church that changed the entire world. And they're just some ordinary people. And it's just birthed out of their suffering. This is what God is doing. It's beautiful. Just ordinary people that God was doing extraordinary things in and through. And by the way, God's still doing that today. All over the world today, God's using just ordinary people. Nobody knows their name. They're not, they're not well known. They've got no clout. They've got no notoriety. A lot of them don't have the education or the experience, but they've yielded themselves to God. Ordinary people fully yielded to God, and God's doing extraordinary things through them. There's a lot of people in this room like that, too. Like the 17-year-old girl who recently went to school and a young man in her school who said he doesn't believe in God, she started to teach him the apologetics, the defense of God and the gospel that she's heard us teach here and she got to share the gospel at her school. Or like the mamas who are gathering together to pray for their children and for their schools. Just ordinary moms but going to an extraordinary God in prayer, believing for extraordinary things for their children. Or like the guy at U.S. Steel sharing his faith in Jesus with a co-worker there. Or like right now in this hour and in the next hour, the men and women who are teaching our little boys and girls, and I don't even know who they all are. And if I told you their names, you probably wouldn't know who they are, but ordinary people doing extraordinary things in people's lives all around the world today. So that's the beginning of this church that changed the world. It began with suffering. It began with just some ordinary people. Now let's talk about not only the beginning, but the boom. The boom of this church. Verse 20 of chapter 11 says, However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And verse 21 says, The power of... The Greek word there is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. The boom of the Lord was with them. And a large number in a city of 600,000 people, the gospel now is being preached in this wicked, evil, vile place. And a large number of these Gentiles believed and they turned to the Lord. The boom of this church, the power of God, shook the sin right out of the sinners that were living in Antioch, and they repented. Many, many repented and turned to the Lord Jesus in faith to be saved. That boom not only shook the sin out of the sinners in Antioch, but it shook up the people back in Jerusalem too. So they called old uh, Barnabas in. Verse 22 says, when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You've got to go see what's happening out there. Um, Antioch? Like, we gonna, you, think, you think Jesus is doing something in Antioch? Like, no, no self-respecting person wanted to go to Antioch. But they're going to send Barnabas to go check it out. He's the right guy to send. You know, we met him in chapter 4 
when he blessed the church financially, remember that? And then we met him a few chapters ago when he blessed Saul with the gift of friendship. He's a great guy, he's an encourager. So they send Barnabas to Antioch to make sure that what's happening in Antioch is the real deal, that it's legit. Could it be true that in a city like Antioch, there is an entire church of Gentiles who love the Jewish Messiah? Is that even possible? Verse 23 says, When he, that's Barnabas, arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith, and many, see that, many people were brought to the Lord. The boom, the power of God, and Barnabas saw evidence of that power. He saw evidence of the grace of God being poured out in a city like Antioch, and it filled Barnabas, the Bible says, it filled him with joy. I mean, this is a miracle to behold. And he was encouraged, the Bible says, and he turned around and he encouraged those believers. And as a result, there, the church just kept on booming and kept on growing. And God is changing that place one person at a time. The boom of God is happening at such a rate that Barnabas realizes, I can't do this by myself. I'm going to need somebody to help me. And who do you think comes to his mind? Saul. The guy that started this whole persecution and scattering to begin with. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So Barnabas and Saul become this booming ministry team in Antioch. And they took on the challenge of shepherding and discipling all of these new Christians that were coming out of Antioch, this wicked and vile place. Can you imagine starting with people who used to worship the goddess Daphne and the god Apollo and everything that went along with that? Can you imagine what that Sunday school class was like? Right? Can, can you imagine just what it was like to bring all of those people together in fellowship and try to guide it through the gospel and, and begin to guide those people into everything that Jesus had taught those uh, apostles beginning back in Jerusalem? And it was Barnabas and Saul that anchored down there in Antioch for a year, a whole year. And you know what they did? The Bible says they just taught and they taught and they taught. They just poured truth. The truth of God, the truth of God's word into those people. So that's the beginning of the church that changed the world. That's the boom behind the church that changed the world. Third and last, I want you to see the blessing of the church that changed the world. Verse 27 says, During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. We know that happened. Extra biblical material tells us, history records, that this great famine happened in the years 45 and 46 A.D. So verse 29 says, So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. Here's this new group of Christians in Antioch, Gentiles. And they hear the whole Roman Empire is going to get hit with a famine. 
And you know their first thought, their first concern was their Jewish brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. They wanted to care for them. They wanted to minister to them. They wanted to bless them. That's good fruit, right, that these people really love the Lord, right? And so they, they wanted to take up a love offering for the people back in Jerusalem. So they did that. Verse 30 says, this, this they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Amazing. What a blessing. But that's not the blessing. That's not the biggest blessing that's going to come from the church at Antioch. The biggest blessing that's going to come from the church at Antioch, we get to in chapter 13, but we're not going to get there today, but I can't wait to get there because the biggest blessing that ever comes out of this crazy church at Antioch happens in chapter 13, and then you're going to understand why I say this is the church that changed the world. You know, I just want to say this, Brother John, Grace Life could be a church that changes the world. I believe that. Do we not believe the same Jesus? Do we not believe the same gospel? Are we not filled with the same Holy Spirit? Are we not a bunch of people that know what suffering's like also? God has a way. He had a way of using suffering to start that church that changed the world. And, you know, there's suffering in this room today. There could be story after story after story that's told. Person after person in this room today about the suffering that you've gone through or the suffering that you're currently going through. We could be a church that changes the world because we've got suffering in our life too that God could use for His glory. But we could also be a church that changes the world not just because we're people who are suffering, but just like the church in Antioch, we're just some ordinary people. Y'all are the bunch of most boring, regular old Joes I've ever known in my life. And I love you for that. And I'm a boring, regular old Joe too. We just live in this little place, right? Out here. And just a bunch of blue-collar, Jesus-loving, people-loving group of people. Just some ordinary people. Not a lot of clout around here. Not a lot of name recognition around here. Just people who are grinding it out, following Jesus moment by moment. Day after day after day after day. And it's those kinds of people that God uses to change the world. People who suffer well. And just some ordinary people. God does extraordinary things in and through People like that. God delights in using ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things. Hey, right now, would you just invite the Lord? Lord, use me. Use me, Lord. Where I am and where I go and what I do and with what's happening in my life. God, use that. I'm just ordinary. I'm like loaves and fish. But God, you could break me. And you could do something extraordinary. Here I am, Lord. Use me. And you know what? Like God did with them, He might do the same with us. He might use your suffering 
to do something extraordinary. The suffering that you've been through, the suffering that you're in right now, God desires to use that. Here's how great a God He is, is He's never going to let your hurt, your pain, your suffering be for nothing. He'll redeem it. He'll use it. He'll punch holes in the darkness of hell with it to show people the hope and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Are you okay with that? Are you okay today to say, Lord, you know the suffering, you know the hurt, the pain of my life right now or that I'm trying to recover from? God, I give it to you. I don't want it to be wasted. I want it to be used. Your hurt might be what somebody did to you or what you did to yourself. I was in a conversation with some men this morning about how we struggle with failure. We begin to see our identity around that. Listen, let failure be the jet fuel in Jesus that says, God, I want you to use my failure. I want you to use my hurt. I want you to use my pain. I want you to use the suffering that's gone on in my life. Use it, Lord, for your glory. I could tell stories. As I'm looking around the room, I want to call like 10 of y'all out right now and tell your story. And probably the people who are suffering the most at the moment are the people who are doing it. Unknown to everybody else. But God knows. If it weren't for Stephen and those Christians in Jerusalem suffering, there would never have been an Antioch. There wouldn't have ever been a church like Antioch that God used to change the whole world. But Stephen's murder led to the multiplication of churches. Ours is here. We're counted in that number. And here's another point about suffering. If there had been no cross, and if there had been no suffering Savior, there would never have been a suffering Stephen. The Bible is clear. God will not waste your suffering, your hurt, and your pain, and your heartbreak. Are we not saved by a suffering Savior? Then how do we expect the gospel to go around the whole world except through suffering people who follow a suffering servant Savior? Serving Jesus in this world is not going to be easy. A lot of us came up in a time when serving Jesus was easy getting less easy by the moment. And, and we can be ticked off about that and fuss about that and whine about that. And there are some, some places in, that we just need to speak to. I'm not saying that. But could we say today, Lord, no matter how hard it gets, I'm in. On a personal level, on a societal level, God, use me. Whatever happens, however bad it gets, however dark it gets, however difficult, however challenging it gets, 
God, don't waste it. Use all of this for your glory. And I'm going to remind you, if you're suffering today, or you have, I want you to remember this, that somewhere in Jerusalem today, somewhere in Jerusalem, there's a grave that has the bones of Stephen in it. One of our brothers who suffered much. But more important that you remember that is remember this. Somewhere in Jerusalem, there's a grave today that has no bones in it. Because our suffering Savior is our risen Lord Jesus and soon coming King. And when He comes, all of our suffering will be over. And it will all have ended. But until that day comes, let us say today, God, here am I, use me. God, here I am with all of me. Would you use it, Lord? Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I I know... I know a lot of you are suffering today. I wish you weren't. My, my heart's broken for you. One of the bad things about being on wheels right now is I don't get to go around and hug you and love you as much as I'd like to when I get to see you, but I know you're suffering today. Some of you today, perhaps you're suffering physically. Or maybe you're suffering emotionally or maybe your suffering is relational today it's loneliness it's a broken relationship it's abandonment or or maybe it's a financial suffering that you're dealing with right now I don't know what it is some I might but most I don't but can I ask you to do this right now if you would say Lord I want this be fully yours I want, to, I want you to use it God for your glory for your purposes if you'd say yes to that just right where you sit right now would you just flip your hands over with your palms facing the ceiling and just hold that suffering before the Lord and say Lord here it is would you use this your glory for somebody's good would you turn this would you either fix this or use it for jet fuel for the furtherance of your kingdom either way God thank you for what you did at Antioch and thank you for what you're doing at Grace Life Thank you, God, that you are sovereign over all of our suffering. And thank you that soon all our suffering will cease because Jesus is on his way. And we're already one day closer. Thank you for it. It's in your name we pray. I want to invite you to stand. Would you give the Lord your suffering today? Would you trust Him fully with all of your heart today?
you put your hope in him and who he is and what he's going to do.